You're listening to Ascendant Health and Politics, a show about the day's emerging public health issues and the intersection of politics. Your hosts are Kyle McGowan and Amanda Campbell. Well, we recorded this episode that we're going to talk about today um, on the recently passed COVID-19 stimulus and the government funding bill earlier in this week, but unfortunately, due to some audio issues, uh, we're still learning how to do a podcast, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but we're here today to re-record and, um, you know, unfortunately, given the past events of the, you know, uh, last 24 hours, we've decided to take some time at the top of this episode to talk about not only the recent... um, Georgia Senate races and the outcomes of that runoff election on January 5th, but also the events that occurred um, in our nation's capital yesterday. Yeah. You know, yesterday's headline should have been that the Senate majority flipped. Um, Instead, it was about rioters breaking into the U.S. Capitol building, where right now um, it looks like four people were killed yesterday. Um, this hasn't happened since the War of 1812, and that was foreign invaders. This was done by Americans and, and, and encouraged by the sitting president. Um, sadly, this is what happens when, you know, lies fill the void of leadership. Yeah, when I, um, you know, worked on the Hill, it, something like this was never even thought of as right. being possible. Uh, I, I think a lot of folks may or, or may not know, but, you know, security at the nation's capital ramped up significantly following the events of 9-11. And, you know, typically even just trying to get into the building every morning was a chore. You typically had to wait in a long line because it's you have to go through basically airport security in order to get in. Um, but when there are other events, there are folks on top of buildings with, you know, the police are on top of the buildings with, you know, guns, that type of thing. Um, so I just always felt so safe there. Um, but what happened yesterday was really scary. And I spent most of the afternoon trying to check in with friends who still work on the Hill to be sure that they were okay. And thankfully everyone was, you know, a lot of folks were still working from home, but, um, you know, had some friends who even had their children at the house daycare um, mm. and weren't able to get their children until, you know, much later in the evening, which is, gosh, just the scariest thing for any parent. Uh, but it was it was difficult and emotional to watch what was happening um, because it was not only a place that I used to work, but it's one of the greatest physical symbols of freedom and democracy in the world. And it was attacked. Um, the loss of life and the injuries and this moment in our nation is really nothing short of tragic. And I think it was really incredibly important that Congress did, in fact, reconvene late last night to actually certify the election, demonstrating that our democracy can and will prevail. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the votes to certify the election yesterday were traditionally ceremonial. I mean, this just doesn't happen. Yeah, this is an obscure process that typically we would never even know had occurred, right? Right. I, I've, I've had to explain to a number of, of friends over the past few weeks about, well, you know, the, the electors have already, the, the electoral college has already met, and so it's over. Well, yes, it is. It's been over for a while, but until it's not over, over until this ceremonial vote happens. So that's what was happening yesterday. And after and they were they were already in. You go state by state. They were already on the state of Arizona when this happened and they had to to step aside and um because there was people breaking into the Capitol and they got all the way to the House and Senate floors. 
um, after all of that destruction that happened yesterday and the death of those individuals, sadly, 139 Republican members of the House and eight Republican senators still voted against certification. You know, originally a number of uh, other members were going to go along and vote against the certification, but ended up backing out, rightfully so, after the events of yesterday. Uh, One of those were uh, uh, Senator Kelly Leffler here in Georgia, who, along with Senator David Perdue, just lost their re-election campaigns. And, you know, one of the most telling stats, I think, about that runoff election that we had earlier this week was the da- there, there were three races on that ballot. It was the Senator Purdue race, the Senator Leffler race, and a little-known runoff for the Public Service Commission. There were three races, and the Republican for the Public Service Commission, Bubba McDonald, won his race by a percentage point, receiving more votes than either Senator Purdue or Leffler. I mean, let that sink in. Down-ballot races like this, tend to get fewer votes, which this one did. This race, uh, the the Public Service Commission race, received roughly 47,000 fewer votes than the two Senate races. And Bubba still got more raw votes than the two incumbent senators. How does that happen? The only way that this happens in, in a race like this is people showed up to vote and either voted straight Democrat and then still voted Republican Bubba McDonald, or they showed up, pulled a ballot, and left the two Senate races empty and just voted for Bubba. Either way, this 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 is unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. And so, I mean, we look at, like, why did this happen? I mean, there, there are a number of reasons why this happened, but the clearest reason that Senator... Purdue and Senator Leffler are no longer senators is because of the president. Um, I mean, he, he has basically shot himself in the foot in his own election and with this one as well. Um, you know, like he was at a, a rally here in Georgia the day before the election talking about his election being rigged, how it was a, a fraudulent election. Um, you know, and, and, and talking about how he was going to be here in two years running against or supporting someone running against the sitting governor. That's not a good way to encourage your base to get out and vote. And if those voters in North Georgia had actually shown up to vote, Leffler and Purdue would have won, hands down, easily have won. But they stayed at home because the president sowed enough doubt in their mind that the election doesn't matter if you vote either way. It doesn't matter because of all of these crazy conspiracy theories, your vote's not going to count. So they stayed at home. And we did have fewer votes overall in the runoff election than we did in the general election in November, right? Yeah, we did. And you you naturally see that drop off typically. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in these types of races, it's all about turning your base out. Right. The Democrats turned their base out, and frankly, the president depressed the Republican vote enough where, you know, I mean, we have uh, Warnock's going to win just shy of 2%, our win by 2%, just shy of it. Mm-hmm. And then we have um, John Ossoff is going to win 
by a little over a half a point, which is outside the margin of a recount. So Donald Trump was able to get a recount. Neither one of the senators can get that because they lost by so much. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is this is crazy. And one of the other things that the president did that did not help over the past week was, um, you know, he, he recently called, there was a leaked audio of um, a call between the president, some of his legal team, and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where Trump, and, I, and I'm quoting here, Trump said, I just want to find 11,780 votes. That can't be legal. No, absolutely not. In other words, what he's trying to do is convince people who are elected by the people of the state of Georgia, elected officials who are elected by me, you, and others here in the state of Georgia, to break the law and disenfranchise. This would have been the largest disenfranchisement of voters since the Jim Crow era. And, and, And he did it on a phone call and... And this is just outrageous, absolutely outrageous. That call, along with everything that has been happening since November, guarantee you has depressed votes. Again, this is why Leffler is not a senator and Purdue is not a senator anymore. And and some of the claims that they're saying that the president was saying on this phone call is is outrageous. Again, over and over again, he's, he's claiming things that are... Um, such as the Dominion voting machines had an algorithm that were switching Trump votes to Biden votes, that people from out of the state were coming in and voting, that people under age were voting, that they were uh, counting ballots, mail-in ballots multiple times, which is impossible, and that they were shredding ballots, which again did not happen. And, and, and in a court of law, the burden of proof is with the plaintiff. The plaintiff in this case is Mr. Trump and his legal team, and they have yet to prove a single claim. That's why both Democrat and Republican appointed judges, some even appointed by Trump himself, have thrown out these lawsuits over and over and over and over again. They have proved none of these claims. And we we throw our hands up, or people throw their hands up and say, well, I don't know why people turned out. Because for the past two months, this is what has been, the base has been told you can't trust our system. And our election process. And our election process. Mm -hmm. And there was also on that same call, one of the members of uh, Trump's legal team, she's a partner of a well-known D.C. law firm. Her name's uh, Cleta Mitchell. Her firm was unaware that she was on that call. And because of the way that call was handled, she's now currently unemployed. Because this is not how our legal system is supposed to work. You don't get on a phone call with an elected official who runs elections and say, I just need you to find 11,780 votes. It seems like that was a call of desperation because he wasn't able to work through the legal system the way that he had wanted to. Right. Lost, fair and square. So what's needed now? Well, you know, what is needed has already happened with the certification of the election yesterday. I was so glad that, as you mentioned at the top of the, the this episode, that they, uh, the House and the Senate did reconvene and did end up certifying the election. And, you know, Joe Biden will be the president of the United States at noon on January 20th. 
And, uh, you know, I'm, I know you're asking a bigger question here. And, and, you know, I continue to believe that the United States of America is the greatest nation in the history of the world. But we are absolutely on the wrong track. We need new leadership just across the board. And every single one of these new leaders need to have character. This is what happens when you have leadership without character. Both parties have to step up. Well said, Kyle. I don't think I could agree with you anymore. And speaking of stepping up, I think uh, this is probably a good point for us to go back to our original topic for today's podcast, which was uh, the COVID-19 stimulus and government funding bill. Um, You know, before the new year, Congress did step up and finally passed legislation to not only fund the government through the rest of the fiscal year, but also provided much needed COVID-19 stimulus funding. You know, they hadn't passed anything since last spring. Despite the calls from states and public health in particular saying that they desperately needed additional funding in order to support the vaccine distribution that needed to be planned as we were coming closer and closer to having those vaccines approved um, and ready for um, you know mass distribution across the country. So it was typical December shenanigans for Congress leading up to the Christmas holiday. You know, this is pretty typical of how Congress operates. They typically need a a deadline or or the Christmas holiday to put some pressure on members to get to consensus. Um, and government funding was set to run out in mid-December, but they still hadn't gotten to an agreement on what the COVID stimulus package should look like. And so, um, you know, they had decided that they were going to combine both bills because with that government funding bill, that's a must pass piece of legislation. And they were having such difficulties getting both, um, both parties to consensus on, on the COVID package that that was their sort of, um, procedural gimmick, if you will, to get, get them both over the finish line. And so, you know, this, was a little different, though, because um, Congress finally did get to an agreement. Now, they had to do a short-term funding of the government, and then another, and then another, in order <laughs> to provide them with all the time that they needed to get to agreement. But they actually got there, and they passed this gigantic package. Uh, the government funding bill was $1.4 trillion, and the COVID-19 stimulus part of it was $900 billion. Um, but right after the Congress passed it, um, the president released a video on Twitter the Tuesday before Christmas to air his grievances about components of the bill that were uh, not to his liking and particularly his desire for larger stimulus checks, uh, despite the fact that what was in those bills was all negotiated by his own administration and Treasury right. Secretary Mnuchin. It um, was in his own budget. Uh, yes, there are the, a number of the items that the president pointed out in the Twitter video. Um, I think one in particular that I found interesting was the forty million dollars for the Kennedy Center uh, in Washington D.C. That and many of the other items he included were part of his budget request to Congress. So Congress just did what he had asked them to do. <laughs> right. So. Um, thankfully, though, crisis was averted at the last second, uh, and President Trump did sign the bill uh, the Sunday after Christmas, uh, just 
a little over 24 hours shy of actually, um, you know, being in, in some precarious waters and having to actually have a government shutdown. Yeah. And in this bill, you know, you talked about how the Congress always has to have a deadline and it tends to be around Christmas or some, you know, holiday like this. And another thing that is typical is that, you know, this bill was nearly almost 6,000 pages. That tends to be typical for for Congress as well. Uh, I heard the other day that um, this is uh, this bill was longer than the entire Harry Potter series, which is just, you know, seven (laughs) volumes. uh, but th- this is just, again, typical of, of Congress. Um, right. But leading up to the passage of the bill, there, you know, as you mentioned, there were some sticking points. I mean, there were, the Republicans wanted liability protection built in for businesses. Um, you know, some of the, the Republicans on the, uh, the kind of physical hawks on the Republican side um, were kind of skeptical of what the Dems wanted to put in around direct aid to the states and local local governments, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And then, of course, the other issue was whether or not to continue the direct stimulus checks. And that was a really interesting issue because unlike the two points that you just mentioned, um, this issue had support from either ends of the political spectrum. We had Bernie Sanders, actually, the um, self-proclaimed socialist who is a Democrat uh, senator from the state of Vermont, and Josh Hawley, the Republican senator from Missouri, both supporting these larger stimulus checks. Um, but it lacked support from the moderate members of the Republican caucus in the Senate. So McConnell, excuse me, Leader McConnell, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't support the larger stimulus checks. And that's how they got to that $600 amount. Right. Well, and the stimulus checks is, uh, I mean, the, the the number or the dollar amount of those checks ended up being a sticking point for Trump as well. Um, I know he he had a lot of different, as you mentioned, items that he, he didn't like and, you know, we called him pork. He was, I think, confusing what was in the stimulus bill, bill versus what was in the uh, long-term, you know, appropriations bill. Um, right. But, you know, th- this was also a, a big issue for the um, two senators running for re-election here in the runoff. Um, the checks were at 600. Trump and the Democrats wanted it increased to 2,000. But the two senators here voted for the bill at 600. And right. so they're put into this position running where you have to gin up your base. To, we've already talked about how their base didn't turn out. Their base doesn't want people to get $2,000 checks, some of them. They don't even want them to have $600 checks. So the president has put them in a position where they have to go on the record either supporting where the checks are at, 600 or increasing them to 2000 Either way, they're going to make somebody mad. They're in a no-win position. Yeah, it's a terrible place to be. And... I think they both did, you know, after the the president came out saying that he wanted $2,000 checks, they, you know, immediately had to say that they wanted them as well. So it's just, you know, a very interesting time, um, lots of drama in in D.C. And um, I think the other thing that happened that was somewhat interesting was that, you know, the day after he signed the the stimulus and the funding bill – he actually vetoed the National Defense Authorization Act, right? Which then had to be overridden by Congress quickly. Overridden. 
So talk about some some real drama. Um, but, you know, one thing that you mentioned was that there was probably confusion on the president's part between the funding portion of the bill and the stimulus portion of the bill. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, that's kind of a procedural gimmick. You know, they'll, the Congress will typically see a government funding bill or piece of legislation as something that must pass it because we have to fund the government in order for it to stay open. And so they'll almost treat it like a Christmas tree and put different pieces of legislation that, you know, they need in order to get the votes that are required in order to get it through both chambers. So it's, it's not uncommon for a funding bill to have other things tacked on to it. And one of the things, you know, traditionally over the years, I know the, um, and this again is probably a, a good um, discussion for another show, but traditionally the way you get people to vote for these types of bills are really it boils down to two things. Your leadership strong arms you into voting or you get some type of goodie in it. And you're talking about, you know, putting lights on the Christmas tree and bells and whistles and things like that. One of the tactics to get people on board in the past were earmarks. Mm-hmm. And we don't do that anymore. Right. And so that makes things even more difficult. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we saw what we did, just how difficult it is for Congress to get to consensus and the fact that they needed three different uh, continuing resolutions to To get get the time they needed in order to actually finally get there. Um, But, you know, as I said, the the government funding bill was $1.4 trillion to get us through, you know, December to the end of the fiscal year, which will run through September 30th, 2021. Um, And, you know, that's important because it means that the ability of the incoming Biden administration to use another round of, you know, discussions and, um, you know, discussions over funding are is off the table until that time. So the Congress could have easily chosen to just fund the government through March or April, and that would have then given the, in, the new Congress and the incoming administration an opportunity to actually pass something at that time when they needed to negotiate, you know, additional government funding. So it's right. interesting that they um, were able to accomplish that. I think it's actually a really good thing. Um, I think it will provide a little bit of leeway to the incoming administration. They're, they're going to have a lot on their plate trying to figure out um, exactly what their legislative agenda is, uh, aside from all the work that they have to do related to the COVID-19 response. Um but just a couple of other things about the COVID-19 stimulus package, which was about $900 billion. You know, that included those $600 direct stimulus checks that we talked about, um, an extension of the current ban on evictions and foreclosures, about $325 billion to help small businesses, and then a litany of other items, um, you know, money for schools and, you know, some a, a lot of funding too to to go towards public health. Um, you know, this also included an additional bill to stop surprise medical bills, uh, which is basically, you know, when you go to the hospital and your hospital's in network, but you see a doctor there that's outside your network and you get charged out the wazoo. Um, that's a surprise medical right. bill because you didn't realize that the doctor you were seeing was out of network. And um, I think that was um, real, really an achievement. It was, 
um, one of the big pieces of legislation that Lamar Alexander, who was the chairman of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in the Senate, one of his priorities, um, and he retired at the end of this year. So um, I think, you know, one, not good for his legacy, but also good for the American people that we finally got that accomplished. Absolutely. So what's in it for public health? I mean, in previous episodes of the our podcast, we, we've talked about, you know, needing to get enough um, financial support for the last mile down to the states to be able to get the vaccine out and, and things like that. Um, I know the Department of Health and Human Services received nearly $73 billion to support public health. So let's get into some of those numbers. What, what What's in that $73 billion? Yeah, absolutely. You know... $73 billion is a pretty big number. Um, when they passed the CARES Act earlier this year, it included about $100 billion to support public health. Um, but So $73 billion, you know, is almost matching that. And you have to think about it in terms of the Department of Health and Human Services annual budget, uh, which is about $87 billion. So we're talking about, you know, another full annual um budget essentially for the department that's going to actually be going out to public health. And, you know, that money is really going to be going out largely to states. Um, you know, $8.75 billion was allocated directly to the CDC to help support federal, state, local, territorial, you know, public health agencies across the country to administer, distribute, monitor, et cetera, you know, the, um, not only the coronavirus, but also the vaccination distribution efforts that are now currently underway. So to put that into perspective, I mean, that that's roughly the annual budget, entire annual budget of the CDC. Yeah, that's exactly right. But it's really what was needed. And, you know, we've said before on this podcast that um, even, you know, months ago, Director Redfield said that the states needed five to six billion dollars in order to support the vaccine distribution efforts um, across the country. And so this bill does direct four and a half billion directly to states and and, um, other local public health departments. And it also does direct some funding as well to underserved populations and high risk populations specifically, because as you know, we're seeing uh, those communities more hard hit by COVID, sadly. So it's great that they're, you know, actually calling that out here in this bill. Uh, But there are a number of other um, major investments that the COVID stimulus package identified. One uh, was for the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. They got about $23 billion. And that's essentially, um, you know, the, the, office within the Department of Health and Human Services that's, you know, responsible for responding in times of health emergencies. So they have this little known office called the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, which got about $20 billion to help support the manufacturing and procurement of additional vaccines and therapeutics, which is really important to ensure that we can continue to have a strong pipeline there, especially now as we're seeing uh, the COVID virus mutate. We don't know yet exactly how our therapeutics or the vaccines will respond to that new strain. And we've got to continue to make investments in those technologies. 
There was also another big tranche of funding for the Public Health and Social Services Emergency Fund, about $25 billion there to support testing and contact tracing. And we've actually already seen a good chunk of that money go out the door. Um, CDC just made an announcement yesterday that uh, that funding will flow through them directly to the state public health departments um, in order to, you know, support those efforts, which is great because even though at this point in time, the number of cases are really too high for us to do um, contact tracing effectively. The hope is that as we have vaccine, hopefully as people are following public health measures, we're going to see those numbers go down and get to a point where contact tracing can once again be done effectively and really help us to get through, you know, that tail end of the epidemiology curve. Right. And and to kind of explain that further, I mean, if, a, if a, an outbreak is in rough terms, a bell curve, you start at the beginning, um, these types of uh, what I would call public health measures of contact tracing work well in the front end mm-hmm. when you haven't gotten to full do- full blown pandemic like we are now. But it also, as you said, works on the tail end of Right. The, the the curve, um, because we're going to have hot spots that are popping up even well into the vaccination campaign, and this will become even more and more important. Exactly. And, you know, I think they're going to try, at least as, as numbers are still relatively low, if they can accurately identify this new strain of COVID, do their best to do contract tracing even now, um, as those numbers are still relatively low, as far as we know. Right. Um, and then, you know, just one more investment to point out was, you know, some additional funding to support the NIH and their research and clinical trials for additional diagnostics for COVID-19. Uh, granted, it's a it's a small drop in the bucket for NIH. Love them. But, you know, with a, a $40 billion annual budget, this is, you know, just a an additional, you know, drop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as you mentioned, I mean, their, their budget tends to be in the 40 40- billion dollar range annually while the CDC is in that eight and a half, nine billion. And I think the, you know, showing that the CDC, you know, received another $8.75 billion, basically their entire annual budget. I mean, this is probably another, again, something we can come back to in a future episode talking about specifically the funding at the CDC. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- I think this shows that uh, more money needs to be invested moving forward for the um, response side of public health. Right. I think one of the things that's interesting and will be a part of the conversation, especially with the new administration and as we continue to get through the response, is what will funding for public health look like over the longer term? I think, obviously, these investments are critically important and absolutely necessary, but the, all of that funding was in the stimulus portion of this package. If you look at the actual annual funding, you know, um, part of the bill, those levels remained relatively unchanged right. as far as the traditional funding for CDC and the other components of our public health systems. So I think, you know, we've got to ha- have that, that discussion as a nation really here in, in the coming months and, and, and years, frankly. Yeah. Well, you know, one other thing that was in the bill um, that I want to mention is um, about a building, you know, and and 
the two of us have had the ability to work on a lot of what I would say are very meaningful things while at HHS and on Capitol Hill and at the CDC. Uh, but this one is uh, kind of personal for me and, and I believe you as well. Mm-hmm. And that um, there's a, a building 108 at the Shambly campus here in Georgia uh, for on the CDC campus is going to be uh, renamed the Johnny Isaacson Public Health Research Building. And I am proud, I know we both are proud, that we were able to work with uh, career folks at the CDC and others on Capitol Hill to get that done. And I'm so happy that it it finally got put into this bill. We've been trying to get this uh, changed for a number of years now. And Senator Isaacson has been such a champion for the CDC and public health. I know there have been multiple times where either one of us or someone at the CDC can call pretty much anyone on his staff when we needed something. Um, and he has just always been such a wonderful advocate, um, and he is going to be absolutely um, and is missed in the U.S. Senate. I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, I think one of the things that was important to you and I, and that we still have a passion for, is the need for our our new senators and the rest of the Georgia delegation to follow in Senator Isaacson's footsteps and be champions and advocates for the CDC. It is one of the gems here in the state of Georgia, but they need more champions on Capitol Hill, yep. to be honest. And we should have so much pride in the fact that the CDC is located here in not only in Georgia, but in the Atlanta area. And not only the benefit that that brings to our state, um, but really also to the opportunity it gives our members to be vocal advocates and supporters of public health more generally and to speak about the value of it. So my hope is that um, folks are not going to take this lightheartedly and, and you know, will follow in his footsteps. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, as a reminder, you can now find our podcast on iTunes and Spotify Radio. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe, and if you have a moment, maybe a positive review. Remember to stay classy, stay healthy, America.